welcome to the second of two episodes of podcasts produced by Sable Radio with Fat Liverpool and Liverpool Berniel to accompany the exhibition The Only Good System is a Sound System by RS Collective Black Obsidian Sound System. This exhibition can be seen at Fact from the 19th of May until the 28th of August 2021. This episode is a conversation between writer and deputy director of the Stephen Lawrence Foundation, Lisa Amanda Palmer, and veteran DJ Giona Zinga Sounds, as they talk about their formation, experiences of being women in sound system culture, and their role in the wider black arts movement of the 80s and 90s. So, good afternoon, everyone. Um, It's lovely to have you both here with us. I'm here. My name's Lisa Palmer um, from the Stephen Lawrence Research Centre, and I'm joined... It's wonderful discussion this afternoon, well, promises to be a wonderful discussion this afternoon, with Linda Patton and June Reed from Enzinga Sounds. So welcome, Linda and June. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you, Lisa. So this conversation, I guess, is really to sort of go into, for me, it's, a, it's, it's about trying to understand the history the contribution, um, the ongoing legacy of Enzinger Sounds. Enzinger Sound being one of the longest running um, sound systems run, organised, developed by women, by both of you. And really to kind of get, I guess for everybody listening in, to get a feel of how Enzinger Sounds started and why it started in the first place. Okay, thanks. Um, thanks, Lisa, and yeah, thanks, Ade. Um, it really, really started with Linda and her family. Linda, Linda's family originates from Sierra Leone and were, were and still are a very, very social family. Um, Linda, at the time that I knew her, I should actually maybe say that um, actually we met we met at school. We were aged 11 at secondary school in South East London, and we've been friends ever, ever, ever since. Um, but going back to Linda and her family, very, very social family, five children, and um, they used to, the family used to have um, parties, house parties, and used to invite family, obviously, this Sierra Leonean massive, um, um, neighbours and friends and Linda used to invite myself and other friends from Norwood School um, amongst them was a, a departed friend called June um, and um, Linda took up the mantle in playing the music and it wasn't like it is today with CDJs or you know um, YouTube or Spotify it was one deck and um, you used to have to pack the seven inches on the, um, I, think, I think it's called a spool, and you know, queuing was a thing because uh, I don't think Linda, I don't think you had headphones at the time, so it's literally by sight. Um, and so I was, you know, took up the role of assisting Linda as um, we would, she would change the tracks, and I would put them quickly in the sleeve and have the next track ready for her. And I think at this point, I'd hand back to Linda because I'm sure I'm missing some of the detail. Well. I mean, just to add to that, that, I think the context, Lisa, is really important because um, we both lived in South London. I lived in South West in Brixton at the time and June was in South East um, London. But 
in terms of how the music, as Jean rightly says, we were a very social family, and so it was like any excuse for a party or a gathering of some sort. And potentially it was because oftentimes we didn't have access to social clubs or my parents didn't have access to clubs or, or even churches in those days. You know, it very much was um, black communities self-help, you know, so you had to make your own entertainment. And so social gatherings at our house was a norm for us. Living in Brixton as we were in those days, access to music in the markets. My dad used big buy of music, and so he would on the shopping trips to, maybe to buy groceries. He'd come back with the latest Titan Up album or Treasure Isle track, as well as um, the latest Motown. And that was how you know we began to really build up, um, I suppose, knowledge of music. But also because our parents were very much into music, our fathers were both jazz buffs, and so we learned a lot about the classic jazz musicians, but it was really about just a love of music, a love of community, a love of gathering and coming together that really started me playing and then obviously June being on hand to, you know, help with the playing of the music. So that's how we got to play as children, because we were still children um, in those days. But Nzinga Sounds really came about through a whole series of happenings, I suppose, that really were a consequence of our lives at the time. We went to school together, as Junior said, then we went to university together at Middlesex Uni, then we left there, our first jobs together were at Virgin Records. So there was a number of things that really led to enabling us to grow our interest and our passion for music in our personal collections. And again, obviously, the political and social context of the time influenced how we played. So um, I'll hand back to June, but before I do, just to mention... The university days was, again, very, very important because we were a community of black students. And again, we had to make our own entertainment. So there was a number of different flats and we used to rotate parties, you know, at these flats and bring all our families and friends into, you know, the night and enjoy music. And again, we'd be playing at those parties. I also think, um, just before we go on, I really want to draw attention to the fact that you've Um, One of the reasons why we're having this conversation is because you've also written recently a chapter um, for the book Narratives from Beyond the UK Reggae Baseline. Um, The system is sound edited by um, Dr. Les Henry and Professor Matthew Worley. And um, your particular chapter, I think, was striking for me. Um, One, because I think it actually documents this history, which I think is really significant. Um, I mean, the, the, your, the chapter of your of your contribution is the story of Enzinger Sounds and the women's voice in sound system culture. And um, just having read the, the chapter, and I think what's interesting for me um, is that you're talking about the role of, of um, yourselves as young women and really young w- women, actually children in, in, in a in effect, growing up, listening to music and having sound system as a way of um, kind of coming into your own sense of maturity. And I wanted to ask, what is what was the significance of um, sound system and the, the, the culture of sound system into you growing and becoming women in, in, in your own right? I would say that both Linda and I came from um, families that had very high standards. So 
we weren't the young women that were sneaking out of the windows, padding our beds with pillows and sneaking off to the clubs. That wasn't going to happen. So I think our interaction with sound system came from being slightly older and also from developing our, our own practice. But as Linda said, music was always in our lives, you know, um, from, in the case of Linda, maybe from her, the, the parties that her family had, but also she sort of described her father coming back, you know, having gone to the, the market for food, coming back with all the jazz music and the reggae music. And in my case, I can still see my mind's eye. I was I was under 16 because of where I was living and I was listening to the gram, you know, the radio. And it wasn't like it is today where you have... Um, black community radio stations playing all kinds of music. It was going to be Radio London or the BBC of some sort. And I'd be listening. Maybe I don't know if I should say this because people might not talk to me afterwards, but I was listening to Creedence Quillier, Water Revival, Rod Stewart, you know, Elton John, that kind of music, because that's what was available at, at that time. And in our home, um, similar to Linda's dad, you know, my dad was into jazz. Uh, my mum was more into Pat Boone and... Um, the other Jimmy Reeves or Jim Reeves, that kind of kind of music. So, um, but as Linda was saying, you know, I didn't live in the flats where Linda lived because I, I, I was commuting from home. But, um, you know, we would go to those parties with the other students and, and, and the other friends and we would play music there. And then from Linda's um, family parties, members of Linda's extended family and family would ask us to play. And that's really where the sound system kind of really moved away from just the single deck to actually us deciding we're getting lots of regular requests here and we can't keep hiring equipment, we can't keep buying equipment. And so the two really good friends, um, Ken McCullough, who's a visual artist, and Dada, who's a scientist, but also um, a filmmaker, we collected, um, we bought, we decided to buy equipment. And so we had our decks, we had our mixer, we had our amplifier. The only thing at the time we didn't have was um, the boxes. We used to hire those. And it got to a point where it didn't make sense to hire because it was time-consuming and it cost money. And so we, we, we bought speakers, and I think maybe I'll hand over to Linda to add at this point. Um, I think my thoughts and, you know, in response to what you were asking, Lisa, kind of like makes me um, focus on, um, you know, coming to, into our own as women, um, in my case, coming into my own politically. I mean, that was my first real conscious um, understanding of myself as a person. I was very much um, responding to what was going on in the world, you know, the atrocities that were happening. I remember being age 16 and joining the anti-apartheid movement and demonstrating outside South Africa House in West London, in, near Trafalgar Square. And the reason why that resonates so much with me is that years later, decades later, we were no longer outside, but I was actually attending a wedding reception for an African, an African Caribbean couple inside South Africa House. So that's how far, you know, in terms of an example of how far I was as a 16 year old and maybe as somebody who's 47 later, 30, 30 odd years later, and how, you know, kind of politically things had moved on. But my political awareness was the first kind of like, I suppose, um, understanding of myself as a person and then as a black woman been going to Middlesex University, quite a middle militant um, university at the time. It was known for its militancy, and we had um, 
but generally because it was the time of the Thatcher years, the, the time of the Scargill and the minor strikes, um, and obviously black people were under the cosh in many, many respects. I remember starting at university and being um, very very much part of setting up the African or the Afro-Caribbean society, as we um, called it then, being very much involved in the overseas students' dilemma because, again, they were being ripped off royally in terms of um, you know, African students in the main having to pay extortionate fees um, and, you know, the explo- that exploitation that was um, going on. And also being aware of the, at the time, the feminist movement and, and very clear that we didn't fit as black women within that that whole um, that concept didn't really reflect our lives. And um, so that was the beginning of me beginning to, I suppose, search for, you know, who was, you know, who is Linda or is in your pattern? You know, and obviously DJ Ade is part of Nzinga Sounds, but the sound really enabled us, was part of that coming of age because the music, as I said before, reflected our personal beliefs and also reflected the times that we were in and reflected the challenges and the struggles of the black community. So very much that went hand in hand. So as we grew in um, awareness, grew in knowledge, uh, grew in understanding, so did our skills, I, I believe, and our um, our skills and understanding of where Nzinga sounds sat within the black community. Because it very much was, you know, a, a product of the time. So whilst we lived in South East London, because we, we worked for the most part in the early years in, after we left the university in North London, we played a lot in North London, in Tottenham, in, in uh, Stoke Newington in East London. We played a lot in Hackney. So the music took us to other black communities because those were the places where the dances were, where the weddings were. Um, you know, the fact that um, as women you were operating in a space that was predominantly very male-dominated. What, was the, what were the perceptions um, that you um, had experienced around you turning up as sound system women at a dance or a club or you know any of the events that you that you um, were playing at you know how do how were you received as women in those spaces it, it would um it would vary but um we weren't supposed to be women behind the decks and oftentimes people couldn't believe their eyes and i think they need to go to spec savers because we tell um a story um, whereby a person approaches Ken, the brother that was with us, and they're asking him some kind of question. And he is a very gentle soul. And he says, you know, shrugs his shoulders and says, you need to ask them, you know, referring to myself and um, Linda, you know, one of us will probably have the headphones on because we're queuing the record. One of us will be selecting, but the person has to go to the male who's sitting off center from the um, from the equipment because clearly it can't be us that are playing. And I often used to say, and Linda would correct me, she was right, that often it was the men, but we both recall a situation, it would be the men that really couldn't handle um, seeing two women behind the decks. But um, we both recount a, um, I think it was a 40th birthday party in South London, and this couple walk in, so we're at the far end of the room, I think by the window and they walk in and they they stand by the wall at the furthest end and they both um 
you know, look like, oh, we're not going to have a good night here. And maybe one of them's got their arms folded and the look on their face is like of displeasure. But by the end of the evening, they're rocking with everybody else and really having having a good time. And I'll let Ade add um, further to that. I, mean, I would just add, um, just in terms of, um, well, just to say that one of the, my ambitions is to write a book and the title of it is going to be Where's the DJ? Because that's the refrain that, you know, we've had throughout the 40-odd years that we've been doing this. Literally, as June would say, you could be leaning over the graphic, you know, or the, the amplifier. You could be selecting music, draped in a headphone, with the microphone, ready to chat, where's the DJ? Incredulous. But that's what, you know, we had from day one. And, you know, unfortunately, maybe less so, but we still get that. But I would also say that, from my perspective, I think that, I think that there was more, there was, unfortunately, I think, uh, um, a lot of... Um, negativity in the early days from women as well simply because I think that we were disruptors within the dance hall space because it was not what was expected you know there's a certain kind of uh, code being a codified space in terms of like you mentioned in terms of the MC the DJ the box boy the engineer that you know people have specific roles and it, in terms of the setting up there's a whole kind of protocol you know of how a dance opens up and unfolds and part of that is where you have you know traditional sound like saxon or um you know um coxon yeah so coxon and you have the followers you know often the the the, the um, female adherents would gather in a particular space very near to the so if we turn up that automatically can't happen because we're not going to be say all oh, the lovely girls come on to me and you know big up you know that's not going to happen it's a different dynamic. So our formative years were playing, for the most part, at community dances, like June says, weddings, naming ceremonies, very much from an African perspective, but very much from a conscious, I suppose, black conscious, uh, who were a crowd that were very much about black identity and were coming together because of a love of particular music in a way, but being open to other music because I think the other thing we, that we should have mentioned is the important influence in how we played music was the time that we spent at Virgin being the first and second black people to work at Virgin ever in the in the early 80s when we left uni so that enabled us to really broaden our music offer which was reflected in how we play so that also had the, an impact. This is so good. I had a couple of other anecdotes. So we've had people actually, no, I, should, I shouldn't say people because I, I don't think we ever had women do it. We had women coming, men coming over to the boxes, our record boxes, and not asking, but just leafing through our records and actually asking whose records were these. And one time when I went to recce um, a, a place, uh, it, it was the manager, it wasn't the engineer for the venue because they had their own equipment. And I said, you know, my name's June and I'm playing a, a couple of the gentleman's name, his 60th birthday party and I've come to check the equipment in the place. So I we go downstairs and I start to ask him questions that he can't understand, you know, he can't answer because he's not the engineer. So what he says to me then is, so when the DJ comes, so I said, um, I am one of them. So he deferred to the person that he was expecting to be DJ as a man. So even though I've introduced myself as who I am upstairs, because I'm now asking him questions that he can't understand or can't he can't actually um, answer. And because he wants to tell me how the setup runs um, and what I can and cannot do, 
which is from ignorance because that's not his experience. Um, he can't deal with me being a woman. So I end up speaking to the engineer. It's all good because it was the engineer knowing what we needed and myself on behalf of the sound knowing what we needed. And we were all good. And there's more stories, but, you know, there's, there's, there's obviously time we, to, we need to talk about other, other aspects of our journey. I think that also goes back to the point you made earlier around um, being disruptors you know, disrupting the space and disrupting the dynamics of how the sound system space and what we come to expect in terms of how the sound system should run and the roles in which, um, if oftentimes the quite sometimes limited roles that women are expected to play in those spaces or de, or kind of defined roles. Not that women work. It's not that I don't think women were necessarily um, kind of accepting of a particular kind of role I think they might have there was an expectation for women not to be um, behind the sound system playing the music and to be up front and performing and that's in even in that space I think women can be disruptive and um, you know their performance can be not seen as a kind of conventional way to kind of um kind of conventional form of kind of gendered behaviour expected from women. But at the same time, going into a space as women, playing the music, um, and and to have done it for such a long period of time and still having that sense in which you, each time you do it, you're potentially disrupting the space and changing the, the dynamics even today. is I think that's quite remarkable in... in in many ways. Well, I interviewed um, a DJ called DJ Chills. Um, Linda uh, um, suggested that I was looking for a DJ to do um, an essay on, and it was uh, the idea was to do an intergenerational um, review of someone who was in her 30s um, and ourselves as slightly been older. And um, what I found, not surprising, but disappointing, that someone who... There's such a big age difference between ourselves. Very little has changed. That perception that you can't be any good because you're a woman, the perception of what are you doing playing music in that sphere, you know, those spheres. And it's also something I'm going to take into the dissertation that I'm going to be doing at Goldsmiths, where I use um, Numal, Dr. Numal Puwa's concept of space invaders and disruptors because she's got a whole framework. And it's just really... You know, you can compare the DJ or the sound system operator to lots of other female occupations and lived experience. Um, it's just really interesting, but disappointing that in the 21st century, you know, there's a lack of expectation um, and a lack of regard and respect for women in certain roles. And in this particular context, we're talking about the role of sound system. I, I would kind of like just like to... I just as, as something that I was reflecting on as the question that you asked Lisa, but also June's answer that kind of what um, is, I've come to realise in terms of the journey and the, the uh, I suppose, the long, longe- longevity of Nzinga Sounds has been in no small way as a result of the unique set of social, historical, cultural things that were going on when we were coming through because it strikes me that when we talk about being disruptive when we talk about convention we were almost making new conventions 
in a way, because we were one of the few sounds that I can think of that could really hold a 12... If we had to um, play in a 12 tribes dance, I mean, we're not Rasta, but, you know, we could hold our own. Definitely a Roots re Revival. Definitely a Sukkos, an African, you know, those who want to sweat all night and dance all night, we could hold that. Definitely a, a Soka party, a Calypso party, and definitely a Latin. We can also play to... Eritreans, East Africans, we can play to black British, we can play to professional bodies, whether they're black, the, black, the BBC Black Workers or the Jamaican Association of Nurses. We can also play it. We played it, um, dances where it's predominantly gay. So, you know, we don't know a sound that, I don't personally know a sound that has had that particular experience as a, as a product of the different audiences that we interacted with. With, that became our audiences and they allowed us to play with them because they had our trust and I think what's so important for me about that Linda is the fact that this also t gives us another way in which to understand the role of sound system cultures that you know I think we do, we have an um, understanding about sound system through uh, a, a very male predominantly male gaze a pr predominantly male lens you know, yeah, predominantly male heterosexual space um, that kind of follows a, a certain set of heteronormativity or heteronormative expectations, I guess. And I think um, part of what you're describing is the way in which sound system culture is um, has these other, I guess, histories, lineages, lineages, um, genealogies you know, different ways to understand its impact and its presence in a multiplicity of different um, communities across. And, and actually rethinking what we think of as, um, as, as, a, as a kind of culture that's predominantly thought through as Caribbean as well. Because I think what you're also referring to, what you've made explicit reference to, is playing in spaces that... Um, are not predominantly heteronormative, but they're not also predominantly Caribbean either. Um, and that versatility of understanding, and not just a versatility, is a kind of exploration of blackness in a sense. There's, you, 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 it's, there's an exploration, um, a kind of opening up of, of what we might imagine black culture to be, and what we often describe it as, but actually what you're talking about is a kind of whole different way and different perspective of what that black culture in the UK was at that time. And you've spoken about the kind of being working for Virgin Records in that mainstream space. Um, you've spoken about, you know, your, your, your roles as sound system um, women of sound, but you've also being connected to other things that were happening at the time, like um, the black arts movement. And I think this, again, if you want to say a little, little bit more about your connections to the black arts movement, um, just to give that some context, because I think what's important there is the, how you can, your, your stories connecting all of these um, spaces that often we think of as disparate or not in conversation with each other or have a kind of disconnection from each other. And from what you're talking about, and just from your own experiences, 
you're showing the ways in which these things are they're kind of interconnected in and informing each other um in 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 really kind of nuanced ways that are often not spoken about Linda, would you like to start because of your when I was the chair of the Black Art Gallery of Obala, but you actually worked there yes, so I mean again, just to remind you know the early eighties you know the the, the thatchy years austerity, so the the whole kind of um virgin experience ended when I left to um to take a job at obala and i I took a pay drop a pay drop purposely because you know I felt that my time at Virgin had you know come to an end, and I wanted to do something different so obala the organization of black arts advancement and learning activities was a really seminal cooperative of black artists working across the art forms. And I think it's important to say that one of the tenets of the organisation was that it wasn't about separating the different art forms. It was providing a space, like June said, that housed the Black Art Gallery, the first, well, one of the first professional spaces for the exhibition of visual artists, but very much encompassing all the other art forms. So we had within that space the Obala Poetry Theatre, um, you know, home to, well, um, hosted events by, um, you know, seminal performers, including Dr. Martin Glynn, who we've made reference to, Anunyapo Shakadedi, who was the, 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 the director of Obala, but also people from the Caribbean and, and Africa and, and the US. Sweet Honey in the Rock performed there. The Last Poets performed there. Oko Onuru, who is like the godfather, who I believe is a, um, um, a not a mentee, but a, a kind of like a, a forerunner within dub poetry and who Linton Kwesi was, uh, you know, a younger, you know, proponent. Jean Binter Bint- Breeze, another phenomenal performer. Errol Lloyd, I mean, so many, so many of the foremost African and Caribbean performers, authors, you know, performing in that space. Carrier Press, Buzz Johnson. Johnson. You know, again, you know, this is the time where, you know, pub, Publications, but black publications were really coming into their fore, you know. But but pe- but people like Buzz Johnson would go from organization to organization with this bag full of books, you know, promoting artists, promoting works, some really important publications of the day. New Beacon Books was around the corner from the Black Art. So this is the atmosphere in which I was working at Obala, and the reason I'm saying that is that you know I don't think there's any other job description. There's no, there's no other job that comes near to that, you know. It's not a job, but it was never a nine to five. I was often up a ladder at 11 o'clock at night painting the gallery floor. I was, or I was in the back office, you know, stuffing envelopes because um, Bouncer, another organisation I belonged to, was maybe fundraising to raise money for prosthetics for people who'd lost limbs in the Mozambique conflict. There was always something going on. But I, as I said before, I'm, I'm very much about a resolution focus. I'm very about action. So this suited my my um, commitment to activism, but also my commitment to culture as a way of, you know, development. So the Obala was a very important space, not least because, as um, June had mentioned, she was chair at the time. It gave a platform to some really important artists, you know, the likes of um, Eddie Chambers, who is now a professor, lecturer in, in America, Keith Piper. Um, Sonia Boyce. People like the, Sonia Boyce, the late, great Donald Rodney, um, these are, you know, if you don't know them, 
personally, you know, I'm sure you know a lot of these names. Lubain Nahimid, who's a recent Turner Prize Award winner, they all showed in that space long before they were ever um, known as artists. But the the the, the, the difference about that space, it was it was a community space. It was a place where you could learn and you could feel comfortable. It wasn't about the relationship with art being something that's to be revered. It was about art being functional. It was about art being a, a kind of a part of your history, part of your culture, um, but something that you should not feel is not for you. So if you're coming from, you know, the dole office or you're coming from dropping your school off at the nursery, you can pop in and feel totally comfortable. And so, you know, it was such a, you know, a, a, a major and important space for the black community. Um, and that was, again, um, you know, people like Melanick. Melanick was a contemporary of Shaka. You know, so he was working within the film space. Shaka was working in, within, you know, the art space and the, the visual art space in particular. But the, this space gave rise to so many things that we've come very familiar with. I, I, Jean, I don't know if you want to speak to about from generation to generation, for instance, as a, as a seminal exhibition that isn't still doing the rounds in the different skies, but it, it had its origins in the black art space. So just before I come to Generation to Generation, I think your memory's going to be better on it than, than myself, so I might introduce it and hand back to you. It was interesting that Ade used the term cultural activist, because when I look back on my time in the 80s, that's what I was doing, but I never named it as that. I was just very passionate about the black arts. So... I happened to meet um, Evi Kadina, who was the um, other founder of a bar, the Black Art Gallery, and I was over overhearing a conversation in a shop, and I just knew that they were they were creating this space, this Black Art Gallery, and I just said, oh, um, 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 you know, I, I want to volunteer, and I'm living in South London, but I'm prepared to go all the way to North to literally do whatever I can to help. Um, the brother and the sister and whoever else is working with them. And as Linda, you know, as, as I mentioned, and Linda um, um, re uh, repeated, you know, I became the chair because at the time I had a choice to either work at the Black Art Gallery or to work with Cheddar Film and Video Workshop that I'm going to talk about in a minute. And I thought, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So I chose to be, or I was given the option of being the chair the first chair of the Black Art Gallery. And then I went to work with um, at the Cheddar Film and Video Workshop. And the reason, and I also was on the board of Minera Black Women's Theatre Company, who was also in Tottenham and did some amazing work. Um, but with the Cheddar Film and Video Workshop, the reason why it's important was that it was established by Menelik Shabazz, the late Menelik Shabazz, um, Ibru Caesar and other filmmakers to provide a space where we could create film and videos that spoke to our history, our experiences, and made by Black Black African people, peoples. And uh, we also showed film. We showed um, Spike Lee's film, first film, first major film, She's Got to Have It. Um, we also hosted talks with the great Usman Zimbin, uh, the Senegalese filmmaker from whom we took the name Chedo. Chedo is the name of one of his films. We had Yuzan Palsi, um, I think from Martinique, talking and screening her films. We did training, skills training in film and video, and we hosted talks. One of the talks we hosted was with the uh, a person from the Independent Broadcast Authority and the late Dame Jocelyn Brown, who worked at Channel, um, not, not worked, but she was um, on the ball for Channel 4, to talk about the banning of our film, The People's Account. It's been shown in community spaces, but it's never been broadcast. Um, and yeah, Menelik, was, Menelik and, and others are saying, including Imri, were key to establishing 
um, that that workshop. So yeah, it, it, it does feed into the sound system. It feeds into the political activism that Linda has, and I would say you know my cultural um, activism, which I hadn't really seen in that way. It was having a prior conversation with yourself and with Linda, where that kind of came out. You know, all that activism, whether it be the political or whether it be the cultural, it does feed in. Um, to our knowledge, our experience, what we feed into um, the perspective that, that we have within Zynga Sounds. And then going back, um, as Linda said, um, we're talking about the early mid-80s um, and um, the Black Art Gallery produced some phenomenal exhibitions. And one of them was called From Generation to Generation, um, the Caribbean or Jamaican front room, Linda? I think it's the Caribbean front room. So they took... Um, they took over the whole gallery and created this front room that all of us, most of us, would be familiar with. So you had the doily, you had the ducks on the free flying ducks on the wall, you had the gram, um, you had the you know the pictures, the black and white pictures, the that, cabinet, and they had the cabinet. And um, Lindy, because her memory's better than me, will go into some more detail. But that was a seminal exhibition that um, hasn't been properly accredited and acknowledged. But I'll hand over to Linda to go into more detail about the exhibition well, itself. Well, no, I think it's um, it's just um, I think somebody alluded to it. I think it was you, um, Lisa. It's, there is kind of a, a real uh, pressing need to you know to 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 to, to shine light on organisations like Obala and initiatives like the Black Art Gallery or and the Obala Poetry Theatre because no one knows about them. You know, that we've got a, a whole generation of you know, po- um, performance poets now who have no clue about the history that's right at their fingertips. You know, really the godfather of 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 of, of dub poetry. You know, performance, but you know he, he performed in Finsbury Park way back in the day. Jean Bean to Breeze. If you haven't heard her work, check it out. You know, all of the flows and all the styles that have the inflection of Jamaica. That's who the, the foundation's artists are about. And this is what Abala was doing back in the day. And this exhibition from generation to generation was a seminal exhibition because it juxtaposed two rooms. One, it was like the traditional, you know, front room of our parents. But then, you know, um, next to it was a, a more modern day um, aspirational um, um, room that was to, more to do with the younger generation, but the point of it was it was about you know conceptualizing and and um, captive, cap, capturing that moment in time that you know unites most of us. I'm from a West African background, but I we had the doilies, we had the cabinet. You know, woe betide you ever you know <laughs> it, when you're dusting and you broke one, same punishment. You know, so that we have commonalities. So it's it's a bit about how do we join the dots and. So, you know, there's recent iterations of this front room that's been going around for the last maybe 10 years. But, you know, it doesn't give a nod to where the origins of that came from. And we I find that that happens all too often. And it's something that we, you know, that we as a black community or communities can't afford to do. We need to really, you know, join the dots, you know, give respect. You know, you know, I had a, a, an earlier Zoom meeting where we were talking about, you know, the importance of award ceremonies for, you know, uh, so, you know, if we're not if we're not getting recognition by BAFTA, then we should be doing our own. We shouldn't have to be given the likes of Melanic posthumous awards. It's just crazy. You know, I think we just continue to make these same mistakes, and people who should know better don't do better. In my personal opinion, and, just, and I think it's sort of not right. Um, and just to add that we should give credit a little more. Correct me or add to Shaka Dedi and to Ken Yahweh McCullough who still um, 
um, producing works of, of astounding quality that worked on and, 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 and developed those two rooms. Is that right, Linda? Yes, I, I think Anum Iapu, Iapu, another artist, a performance artist, I think is a visual artist as well. You know, the, these are people who, you know, who really kind of, um, we need, they need to, they need, they need to be familiar names. You know, we need to, you know, the, 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 and within the, the this current technology age, you know, the, it's not a massive leap to be able to, you know, make this, the, these works available. Eddie Chambers, you know, he was the first one who um, painted the, the Union Jack, I think, in the, you know, Jamaican flag colours. There, there ain't no black in the Union Jack. That didn't come from, that's not just now, that was from... You know, way back when we need to know these artists and you know um you know the, these are the the, the artists who, who were really reflecting from through a, a visual realm what was really going on for you know what, what i'm hoping um lisa and linda is that from this podcast um there have been books on black visual arts um i can't think of the most recent one but Ed, eddie chambers wrote one and um Sorry, and uh, Sonia Boyce has written a couple in partnership with other people. But I really hope that um, someone listening to the podcast will be inspired to do some research on the Black Art Gallery, for example, you know, because that could fill a whole book. Because Linda said there were so many elements um, to it. And a lot of the people that we've, we've mentioned here are still around. Um, and some people would, would have posters and brochures and, and, and things that could be captured now because yeah again pre-internet days so it's not as though I was walking around with my Samsung 10 and you know taking a picture of Linda beside some picture or whatever and I have to say I've forgotten but it, it was it, it's in um, Eddie's book uh, one of Eddie's books about uh, black art but I um, I think with the encouragement of Linda and a, and a sister that we've lost called Hawa was encouraged to put in a photograph into this exhibition and I'd completely forgotten um, this 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 photograph. I was just thinking, wow, you know, because I got my first camera in 1981 because I remember it coincided with going to Egypt, and um, you know, I was taking a lot of photographs free having you know um, my son, um, black and white, blah blah blah. So even someone like myself who wasn't a professional had access to participate in in an, in a, an exhibition of uh, female photographers, female artists in you know in the Black Art Gallery back in the early mid 80s. You know, amazing. I'm just mindful that we're coming towards the, the yeah. end of what has been a, a powerful discussion, really, and just doing this important work, as you said, I'm just talking through these histories because we just don't have an opportunity to do this um, often enough. And I think make the importance of making those connections are that we don't fall into those um, kind of traps of, having this, these histories um, disappear before, you know, we do, because oftentimes they, they go with us, we take them to the grave, unfortunately. And so um, we le we're left thinking that we don't have a legacy or that, you know, there's things that haven't been done that have been done. And um, the, so the, the, the powerful aspect for this conversation is that I think... June, you made that rallying call that hopefully there are people who are listening in, interested in picking this up, following up, following up these stories through research, um, because there, there is so much of a rich history, textured histories of our experiences.
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, you might like the first podcast in this series, Brooklyn-based Jamaican-born DJ and producer Tiger Paul. You can also see Black Obsidian Sound System's exhibition, The Only Good System is a Sound System, at Fact as part of Liverpool Biennial, which is open until the 28th of August 2021. You can keep up with Boss's work via at Black Obsidian Sound System on Instagram and Nzinga Sound's work with their Twitter at Nzinga Sounds, as well as their monthly radio show on NTS. For more information about FACT's programme, head to fact.co.uk. Hold up. 